Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So I suppose you figured this out, but we 21st century Westerners hate judgment. We don't like to be judged. We, uh, we also live in fear of someone accusing us of being judgmental. Because once they accuse you, you're judgmental, right? If you reject it, that's a judgment. Don't want to do that. <laughs> so it's a complicated situation. And because we hate judgment, when something horrific happens, one person does something horrible to another person, we still don't want to be judgmental. So we blame it on mental illness. We blame it on the culture. We blame it on religion. We blame it on educational deficit. We blame it on poverty. And I want to tell you today, all of those things can certainly be a factor. Yet when we hear stories of horrific crimes committed against innocent people, inside of us, deep inside of us, we still yearn for just a little bit of justice, right? When we see a, uh, someone who is robbing a store, getting shot while robbing a store, we're kind of like, karma. So what I want to do today, I want to explore what I think is the toughest, que- the toughest question Christians have to deal with. I think all other questions pale in comparison to this one. And the question is, how can a loving God send someone to hell. And I want to tell you as we get into this, refusing to believe in hell is the equivalent of refusing to believe in God because he's laid all this out. So I want to dive into this complicated question today. You see, the story of divine judgment is a story in which love and judgment are intertwined. You can't separate them. They move together. And when we misunderstand who Jesus was, what Jesus did on the cross, all of God's actions seem illogical. They seem arbitrary. They seem unjust. And honestly, they just seem mean sometimes. (laughs) So let's dive in. Introduction. Haven't we outgrown this outdated notion of sin? So Sam Harris is probably one of the five or six most famous atheists today. And Sam wrote a book called Free Will, uh, which you can't see it probably very clearly, but the top are the marionette. I don't even know what they're called, marionette devices. got the strings hanging down so the puppets can't control themselves. And that's the picture that goes with his free will. And he argues about free will in a really, really interesting way. So when he starts this book, which by the way, I do not recommend you going and getting this. 
some of you are going, oh, wow, new book to read. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is, this is a waste of your $8. All right? I mean, unless you just need something to start a fire with, this is a waste of your $8. So he opens the book with the stories of two men and the horrific crimes they commit against an innocent family. They rape they sexually molest the children. They bludgeon people to death. I mean, it's, it's got robbery. It's got murder. It's got all kinds of, of terrible stuff in it. And I just want you to understand, it is nauseating to read what he writes about in there. But what he does with that, he says he recognizes that our natural internal response is to demand justice for those, that innocent family. However, he says those criminals had no real choice. They were going to do what they were going to do. Their actions were entirely determined by past experiences and by their neurological states. And so the suggestion is while you and I may say those guys need to go to prison so they don't ever do that again. They need to go for the rest of their life to stop that. Harris says, we cannot hold those two guys morally accountable because their actions were beyond their control. They literally had no choice. Now, I want to read something to you from this book. Can you bring that next picture up there? Here's, I took a picture of the page for you. Here's what he writes. The idea that we, as conscious beings, are deeply responsible for the character of our mental lives and subsequent behavior is simply impossible to map into reality. So according to Harris, people at their core are fundamentally good. And those that are not are just victims of their society. Let that soak in. Everyone's good. If they're not good, that's the fault of society. So here's the rub. Here's the catch with his view. Can you bring up that next picture? Remember these guys? The 9-11 hijackers? So if the 9-11 hijackers had no moral free agency, if they couldn't help what they were going to do, if they had no freedom of choice in their actions... Then when Todd Beamer and the crew of Flight 93 said, let's roll, and they acted to stop those guys, that cannot be courageous. Because if there can't be evil, then there also can't be courage. If, let's go to the next picture. Sophie Scholl. If Sophie Scholl, who distributed anti-Nazi pamphlets at her university, did not freely choose to do so, then the janitor that turned her into the Gestapo and the Nazi guards who beheaded her also can't be judged for their actions. Let's do the next one. If the ISIS judge who held Nadia Murad as a prisoner as a sex slave, raping and abusing her night after night, cannot be judged for his actions. 
go to the next one. Harriet Tubman cannot be commended for her courage in going back night after night to rescue slaves and walk them to freedom because she couldn't help but do it. There's nothing commendable there. Let's do the next picture. If Larry Nasser, the USA national gymnastics team doctor who sexually exploited 250 young girls during his career, if he cannot be held accountable for his callous crimes, then Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to accuse him, cannot be commended for going against him. It cannot be said that of her own children that she actually loves them because she has no choice. So understand this, our genetics and our circumstances, past and present, certainly inform our decisions. But unless we are willing to rob all humans everywhere of all of their dignity, which by the way is given by God, sometimes we have to say evil is evil. And sometimes we have to say evil comes from the heart. If we can't acknowledge that evil can come from the heart, we also can't acknowledge that good can come from the heart or that love can come from the heart. So as you see all the victims today that I showed you pictures of and so forth, we long for some vengeance on behalf of the victims. However, can we call for vengeance? Can we call for justice if there really wasn't any choice? See the problem? There's where the rub comes in. In your notes, there's a box. Sin is an ongoing and undeniable part of human nature. We cannot get away from it. It's going to be there. So this dawned on the uh, writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn as he was lying in a floor of a on, a on a bed of straw I think it said in a Soviet gulag as a prisoner of the communist state and here's what he said he said gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties but right through every human heart now watch what jeremiah says jeremiah 17 the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked who really knows how bad it is but i the lord search all hearts and examine what secret motives he says i understand things about you even you don't understand i give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve so here's the reality. You and I have so much stuff going on inside of us at times. The realization is that all of our relationships sometimes hinge, actually most of the time, hinge to some extent on hiding the real us from the people around us and hoping that we're not going to be found out. And you know this is true because you've driven at 53rd and Elmore on Friday night. And you know what you want to do to some of those cars. 
All right, so here we go. Number one, some stuff we got to grapple with. There's a lot of stuff that actually sets up this stuff. Number one, reality is you and I, we want to know and be known, but sin makes us play hide and seek. Sin makes us play hide and seek. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to have you circle and underline it here. Then it was as if their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made something to cover themselves. The first fashionistas. Oh, and they were vegan. Interesting. Okay, so... Then they heard the Lord God walking in the garden during the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, what? Circle that word. They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, underline the question, what does he ask him? Where are you? Do you really think the God who knows everything didn't know where they were? He didn't ask the question because he didn't know where they were. He asked the question to get them to realize where they were. They were hiding. The man answered, I heard you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Here, underline the last three words. What are they? So I hid, and we have been hiding from everyone since. We attempt to hide ourselves from truth. And listen, without God's truth, we literally lose sight of who God made us to be realize that so much of your heartache flows from your search for your lost identity oh yeah it does we are told that being our authentic selves is the key to happiness got to be your authentic self jason mraz sings the song you be or what you do you which is kind of the self-centered battle cry of our culture right now and any suggestion that someone might make that the authentic me is not a beautiful thing is declared to be hateful bigoted or oppressive and we're told to reject any sense of guilt But, question, so what if the 9-11 hijackers or Dr. Larry Nasser were all just living out their authentic selves? What if they were just doing them? What if they were just being what they thought they should be as they committed their crimes? Which begs another question about me why should I believe that the loving and the kindness in me is truly me but my selfishness and my sin are just anomalies over which I have no control (laughs) all right let's go number two so Christianity seeks to reveal the true us to guess who us right us 
God already sees who we are. Okay, here we go. Uh, Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Here, just underlined to the end. Get this. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are, what? Accountable. We answer to God. I always love seeing the mugshots of the guys who have tattooed across their neck in their mugshot. Only God can judge me. He's actually got a couple of intermediaries before you get to him, but yeah. See, the thing about Christianity is Christianity is awkward because it acts as a searchlight in our darkness. And on the one hand, it confronts us with a God who sees our secret thoughts, who sees our insecurities, who sees our innermost innermost being. He knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. But on the other hand, that searchlight that could track you and me as fugitive criminals, it doesn't. It searches for us as lost children. Look at Luke 15. I love Luke 15. Well, actually, you're not going to look at it. I have it in my notes. I'm just going to recap it. You know the story. We call it the story of the prodigal son. Young, rebellious, self-centered son comes to dad, says, give me my inheritance now. Which for those of you who are like, wow, I wonder how much he got. According to rabbinical law, he got four ninths. Now you can sleep tonight. Okay, so. He took four nights of his dad's wealth and he left and he wasted it all. And then he came back and when he's coming back, his father sees him down the lane and runs out to greet him and he welcomes him home. Not because the kid is a genius, not because the kid is selfless, not because the kid is innocent of any sin against his family. He welcomed him home because he was loved. That's why he brought him back. I saw one author this this week that said, In Christ we are not pursued like wanted criminals, but like wanted children, like wanted lovers, because wrath is replaced by desire. Now, that brings us to number three. The logic of the cross is made clear for us, but it defies human logic. We still struggle with it. So the night Jesus was arrested, he was profoundly distressed. Profoundly distressed. How distressed? Luke 22. He walked away about a stone's throw. By the way, that's how he knew the disciples were sleeping. He could hear them (laughs) snoring. So he's within the snore zone. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering. It's a metaphor. The metaphor is for what's coming. The idea of the cup is it's like taking, it's like drinking uh, vinegar. It's like drinking something so bitter into your mouth that you have to throw it back up. Man, I remember years ago, my mom spent a lot of time in the kitchen cooking, and sometimes she used confectioner's sugar. And I would go through the kitchen, and she's not looking, and I would go, you know, keep going, because you can get a lot of confectioner's sugar on a wet finger. I'm just telling you. You can get a lot on there, man. That stuff sticks to everything. And one time I walked through, and she was making pickles. 
And I saw that bowl full of white powder and I hit it and it was full of alum. My whole face goes, swear from the top of my eyebrows to the bottom of my mouth was about that big. So he's talking, I'm going to drink this thing that is so bitter, I'm not going to be able to keep it. Well, watch what he says. Father, if you're willing, take this cup of suffering, this cup of God's wrath that is about to be given to him. Take it away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Verse 44, he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Listen, some people have suggested Jesus was afraid to die. I can certainly see that from a human perspective because crucifixion was designed to maximize torture while extending life. Some people would live as long as seven days on the cross. Woof. So it was intended to create the kind of terror in the onlookers that the onlookers would say, what did he do? Not doing that. That's what they were after. But for Jesus, the cross was more. Remember, just as God gave human marriage as a metaphor for the relationship he wants with his people, the physical agony of the cross, while very real, very real, was a visual metaphor of a deeper pain. Romans chapter 1. For the what? Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. So this idea of the wrath of God today seems like us, like some kind of an archaic, psychologically damaging relevant, uh, a relic from primitive times. But just as God cannot absolve people of moral accountability without erasing their freedom to love, God's love and mercy cannot be divorced from God's judgment, from God's wrath. I mean, the reality is, the more we love someone or something, the more easily our anger is kindled toward that which damages the thing or person we love, right? I mean, you can say whatever you want about me, and I'll tell you, I really don't care. But you hurt the family that I love, and you're going to wish I was Will Smith. <laughs> Man, you're going to wish I was Will Smith going up there with some open hand girly slap. By the way, you know why he slapped me with open hand? Because paper always beats rock. I'll be here all day. <laughs> so God is placing on Jesus his own wrath, righteous wrath, at every lie you or I have ever told, at every rule you or I have ever broken, at every little theft or maybe dishonesty that you and I have ever made, every evil from the Holocaust, from slavery, from human trafficking, human trafficking from war, from whatever, every sin ever committed from every human being going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and all of that 
loving wrath against all of those things that hurt or damaged the people that he created was supernaturally poured out on Jesus on the cross all at the same time. That is what Jesus was worried about. That's what he was afraid of. That's what he dreaded. The nails in the hand, nail me any day, right? It was all of that other stuff coming on him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering of our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Listen, your sin and my sin put hell on the table. But God prepared an escape. Number four. Jesus was not the passive victim of God's wrath. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and who makes it perfect. He suffered death on the cross, but he, circle that word, what is it? He accepted. It was a willing choice he made. He accepted the shame as if it were nothing because of the joy that was put before him. By the way, you know what the joy was that was put before him? You and me being freed from our sin. And now he's sitting at the right side of God's throne. You know, because of our limited understanding, if I could get one-tenth of one percent of what God has done for us, my head would probably explode. It wouldn't be messy, but it would explode. There's not enough up there for it to be real messy. But one of the things we have trouble understanding, because it's real hard for us to understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and how it all works together, how it fits, that's God trying to use our limited vocabulary to explain to us an unlimited concept. But Jesus was God himself in the flesh. So supernaturally, on the cross, Jesus was both the executioner and the executed. I mean, that's hard for me to grasp. Sometimes we associate God the Father with the Old Testament, and we see him as this angry, vengeful guy. And then we see Jesus, God the Son, in the New Testament, preaching love and mercy and forgiveness. But can I tell you, because you are poorly informed, because that's how we are in America on this, Jesus in the New Testament hammers on God's judgment more than any Old Testament prophet ever even came close to. Jesus talks more about hell than all the prophets. And he's clear. Because he paid for our sin, he is also going to be the one who is going to judge all humanity. The question is, at that final judgment day for you, where is Jesus? Is he your advocate or he your judge? Where's he going to be? In the book of the Revelation, we see this beautiful picture that we see from, of Jesus all the time. We see this tender, vulnerable Lamb of God metaphor that was used to, 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 uh, to, uh, to uh, depict Jesus as the final sacrificial Lamb, as the symbol of God's love. And yet, in the book of Revelation, the sacrificial Lamb becomes an image of terrifying judgment. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 6, and they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the 
lamb. That's Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. So on the cross, the one perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly innocent man who has ever lived faced the full force of God's judgment for our sin drank in God's wrath from that bitter cup and on Easter morning threw away the cup on our behalf. Number five. Jesus received the wrath that I deserve. Again, Jesus was not a random bystander that got drafted to pay for our sin. He made a conscious choice to take on our penalty. And the free choice we have today and every day is to choose, the, to, choose to face the consequence of sin ourselves or to choose to hide ourselves in what Christ did for us. So the atheist Sam Harris believes the whole concept of free will is just a delusion created by people who are trapped. Christianity holds out an alternative. Christianity says, yeah, our actions are certainly informed by our circumstances, experiential and neurological and so forth and genetic and blah, blah, blah. But we are free moral agents nonetheless. And as we have said repeatedly, we are free to make any choice we want, but we are never free of the consequences of those choices. Look at Romans chapter 3. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them and in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So in a very moving speech at that trial, the Olympic coach Larry Nasser, Rachel Denhollander, the first woman to file sexual abuse charges against Nasser, faced the man who took her innocence as a child and she pleaded with him. You can see the whole thing on, uh, on, on uh, YouTube. But let me just list for you. Let me just go through part of this. Here's what she explained to him. The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. So the cross of Jesus serves justice. Through Jesus, my sin and your sin and even Nasser's sin can be expunged. And this is the ultimate scandal of why people don't like Christianity. <laughs> because mercy can be found there. The worst criminal can be pardoned and welcomed. And that's good news for us. Because can I tell you something? Let me give you a news flash. 
Let me give you a spoiler about yourself. You're more evil than you realize. You are. It shows up in your Facebook posts. Right? It shows up in your thoughts when you're watching the news. (laughs) You're nastier than you realize. And yet, in Christ, we become more known and more loved and more truly alive than we could have ever imagined. But it's only in Christ. But to get there, we have to accept responsibility for our sin in order to escape the judgment. Look at Matthew 16 here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, quit trying to be the smartest person in the world in the room. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Can I confess something to you? Every day of my life, I struggle with that. I struggle with this heart sense thing of denying myself of taking up my cross, of believing that Jesus is my life. I have to renew that commitment, that belief every morning and every night. Romans chapter 1. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth, understand that? They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. Every time you look at a flower, you are seeing evidence of God. Every time you feel the wind blow on your face, you are feeling the evidence of God. Every time you watch the Discover Channel, contrary to what they want to tell you, you are seeing the evidence of God. Every time you see a newborn babe, you are seeing the evidence of God. Every time you feel emotion every time you feel anger or happiness or fear or any emotion you are feeling the evidence of God listen God has put himself out there everywhere so that you cannot deny his presence yes it is easy to get lost but it is tough to stay lost you have to make a choice to stay lost that's how much God has put himself out there He says, so they have no excuses for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. In other words, they tried to recreate God in their own image. Or, give me the new word today, they tried to reimagine God. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Listen, in God's word, we find the connection between 
spiritual truths, between science, between universal morality. We find a basis in Scripture for why we can say all men and women are created equal. We find a name for evil, but we also find a name for forgiveness. We find a, a, a vision of love so much deeper than our hearts can ever imagine. We find so much more intimacy than our bodies could ever experience. We find a diagnosis of human nature as shot through with sin and yet redeemable by grace. We find a call to care for the poor, for the oppressed, for the lonely, a call springing from the very heart of God himself and grounded in the hope that one day every tear will be wiped away, every stomach will be filled, every outcast will be embraced. One thing we don't find in scripture are a bunch of memes <laughs> and a bunch of glib answers. We don't find an easy road. Instead, what we do is we find a call to come and die to ourselves. As a young woman, Joy Davidman, a Jewish-American atheist poet, a gal that became a communist to quench her thirst for social justice, her first husband called her from his New York office to let her know he was leaving her for her cousin. She put the children to bed that night, and alone in the silence something happened here's what she wrote by the way some of you are going joy david man i know that name this is uh, the gal from shadowlands this was the gal that c.s lewis married and then that died this was his his wife c.s lewis was her second husband for the first time in my life i felt helpless for the first time my pride was forced to admit that i was not after all the master of my fate and the captain of my soul all my defenses, all the walls of arrogance and self-assuredness and self-love behind which I had hidden from God went down momentarily and God came in. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness, a person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play and I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from a deep sleep. Folks, you realize hell wasn't created for humans at all? Hell was not created for humans. Hell was created for Satan and the angels that rebelled against God in eternity. But justice demands that rebellion and sin find punishment. And God made a way to find him and have eternity with him. And he has plastered it everywhere, even in nature, so that it is possible for anyone, anywhere, through all time, to find God's grace. See, God cannot be a just God if there is no punishment. And he also can't be a merciful God if there's no justice. In Psalm 85, this is not in your notes because I forgot. In Psalm 85, it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Grim justice and peace have kissed. Truth, uh, truth rises from the earth, and righteousness smiles down from heaven. Listen, when we find Christ, here's what Paul reminds us about hell. 
So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. I'll summarize it. In Christ, hell is not on the table for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Father, we thank you for the stories we see from around the world, from people in places we can't imagine who are finding Christ in the most most unimaginable of circumstances for us where he reveals himself. Father, we thank you for loving us like that. We thank you that you've pulled hell off the table for those who trust Christ, even if it's imperfectly, even even if it's without a full understanding of Christ. Father, we thank you that we get to spend eternity with you and all who love you. Father, we ask your blessing this week as we seek to share this message. And honestly, as we kind of wrestle with some of it every day, maybe a couple times a day. Father, draw us closer. Speak to us by your word. Encourage us by your spirit. And Father, let us be that searchlight in the darkness for others. Not the one that's tracking down fugitive criminals, but the searchlight that's looking for lost children who are loved. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.